So last week uh, we did uh, kind of a transition a week, remember, where we uh, did a little bit of um, just a brief review of what we've looked at so far. Uh, we, we looked at uh, a bunch of passages uh, that really call us to be ambassadors, that uh, instruct us in the reality that God designs for us to be in relationship with one another for the purpose of growth and change. And we introduced very briefly what will be the outline for the rest of this class and how we are to help others change. And that outline, remember, is love, know, speak, and do. And so today we're going to have the first of the two weeks uh, on love. And this is a, a lesson which, you know, you could think very generically, yeah, we're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to, you know, love each other like Christ, and think, and think very generically like that, and that would be true, but that would be less than helpful, because uh, we, we know that, uh, but we don't always know what that looks like, on a very practical level, especially when uh, we are in, engaging with someone who's struggling with something in, in their life, whether it's a, a matter of suffering, something they're going through. Uh, or it's a, a battle with sin that they're uh, engaged in. We don't always know what does love look like in this situation. How, how can I engage with this person in a way that ministers to them effectively? And so that's what we want to start to talk about today. So uh, just a, again, a, a quick review from what we've covered so far. The first week we looked at the fact that uh, we all need help. That help is not the result of the curse of sin. Help is not the result of you being a particularly weak person and only weak people need help. Help is something that, that God designed us, built into us to need. Uh, we need truth from outside of ourselves. We need truth, of course, first and foremost from God as He reveals Himself in the pages of, of Scripture. And then He placed us in a world in relationship with others that we are dependent on for growth and change. He didn't design us to live on our own, to make it through life um, without any relationships or just to have all of the resources, all of the wisdom, all of the uh, knowledge in and of ourselves. No, he, he put us in relationships so that we would grow and become more like him. And then we talked about that, uh, the fact that the heart is the target. Then when we're, when we're thinking about how do we minister to, to people, uh, we're not just aiming to conform people in an outward sense to some legalistic standard, to some mold that we're trying to shape people into. We're, rather, we're aiming at the heart. We're seeking to address that central part of a person that makes up uh, who they really are, their soul, their mind, uh, their will, their affections, uh, because that is what drives everything else in life. And so if you address the heart, if you uh, help someone be conformed into the image of Christ at the heart level, that then will overflow and flow out into all of the areas of their life and not just help them in terms of the particular situation that they're dealing with in the moment, but even help them with whatever situation they might find themselves in the future. So we're aiming at the heart. And then we talked about the fact that what gives us great hope in this endeavor is that as believers, we have been united to Jesus Christ, that you and I have died with Christ. Uh, we have risen with Christ. His spirit is in us and he is with us and in us. And therefore, we have all of the resources that we need in Christ to grow and change. Uh, this isn't just about, uh, again, us uh, in our own strength 
conforming to some legalistic standard of behavior. It's, it's about uh, cooperating with the Spirit of God who is in us, who has given us spiritual life, given us the ability to see truth, uh, to understand the truth, uh, and the power then to live out the truth, right? That Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Uh, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is, is working in us the will, the desire, and the ability uh, to do his, his will. So uh, our union with Christ is what gives us hope that there is possibility for change. And then again, last week we saw that we are ambassadors for Christ. And, and that is our responsibility. Really, that's our privilege. That even though God doesn't need any of us, uh, God doesn't need to use you and me in anybody's life. He can change any of us on his own without anybody else's influence. He can download the truth right into us if he wanted to. You know, he, he could reveal through prophetic uh, words if he wanted to. But no, he uses us in our, in our uh, lives with one another uh, to grow and change. And that's a great blessing and opportunity uh, for us to do that. So... Love, no, speak, do is, is the outline for the rest of the class. And, and so today we start with love. Now, the main idea we want to get out today, uh, uh, today and next week really, is that God designs for us to change in the context of relationships that are based on love. God designs for us to change in the context of relationships that are based on love. Uh, we can change in all kinds of ways. God can work change in us in all kinds of ways. We can uh, listen to preaching on the radio and God can do a work of change. And there's no particular relationship of love between us and the radio preacher. Uh, we can hear someone speak from the pulpit that we don't have a close relationship with. And, and we, the Lord can use that to change us. And so the Lord can change us in all kinds of ways. Uh, he can change us even when someone is speaking unkindly to us. He, he can uh, use someone's even sinful speech to convict us. Uh, God can use false teachers to have enough truth that he, he uh, gives spiritual life to dead sinners. God can change people in all kinds of ways. But one of the primary ways that he designs for us to change is in the context of relationships that are based on love. Uh, really, that's the most... Um, uh, the most common uh, dynamic in which we live. We're, we're in, in relationships all the time, right? We're, we're in homes with others. We're in a church context. We're, we're around other people all the time. And so that's, that's the, the air that we breathe. That's the soil and out of which we, we, we grow. Uh, one way to think about this is what is God's purpose for relationships? If you just kind of set aside for the moment the, the idea of growth and change, and um, how God designs us to grow and change. And you instead ask the question, what is God's design for relationships? Why did God create us to be a relational people? You end up at the same answer. Uh, we, we can say that God designed relationships for all kinds of reasons, right? Uh, in Genesis 2, the Lord said, uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Let me make a helper suitable for him. And so you can ask, well, why is it not good for Adam to be alone? You could say, well, well, let me ask you, why is it not good for man to be alone? And I'm not speaking just 
a single man as opposed to a married man, but why is it good? What was in God's mind, do you think, or what, what would be some answers as to why it's not good that man should be alone? Accountability? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a context to put on display godly character. Yeah, if you're by yourself, man, what else is there to think about <laughs> other than yourself? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, opportunity to love others, yeah. He made us to have a relationship because he wants to have a relationship with us. We, in large part, we learn how to relate with God as we have effective relationships with each other. Anything else? Yeah, all, all true things, good and helpful things. What a lot of that is getting at is the fact that uh, if we're left to ourselves, now we're obviously thinking in the context of a sin-cursed world, uh, if left to ourselves, we're going to go down the path of selfishness, self-orientation, self, self, self. But with others, now there's an opportunity to to serve, there's an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ, there's an opportunity to uh, grow in what it means to have a relationship with other people. Uh, which then helps us have a relationship with God. All of that is are different ways of saying that God designed relationships to be loving and redemptive. God designed relationships to be loving and redemptive. God did not, listen to this, God did not design relationships to fulfill our personal happiness. And yet, isn't it true that so often... Because that's our expectation for relationships, that when that doesn't happen, when our personal happiness is violated, <laughs> when it's damaged because of a relationship, our, our temptation is to say, well, forget that. <laughs> I'm cutting that person out of my life because they are no longer satisfying or fulfilling their purpose of, of <coughs> increasing my personal happiness. It's like that saying, I love, uh, I love you because you love me as much as I love me. <laughs> and when you stop loving me as much as I love me, then I'm not going to love you anymore. Right? That's obviously a very self-oriented way. But isn't that true? At least you look at how the world thinks about relationships, how they promote uh, you know, what, what you deserve. You know, so when a relationship is hard you know, between a, a man and a woman, whether married or not, uh, the advice from friends um, in a very secular context, though this often bleeds over in the life of the church, is you got to get rid of that person. They're toxic for you. They're, they're, not, they're not building you up. They're not making you happy. If they're not making you happy, then get rid of that person. Well, that's not God's design for a relationship. God's design for our relationships are to be loving and redemptive. Now, there's obviously a whole lot we could say about what do we do with those relationships that aren't loving. <laughs> um, but the first thing we can say about that is that we should pursue redemption in, a, in an unloving relationship as much as we can, right? Reconciliation. That's a whole other class, the re- reconciliation class. But God designed our relationships to be loving and redemptive, which, of course, because we cannot control how anybody else participates with us in, in relationship to us, having that thought is to shape your own mind as to how should I engage with others in a way that's loving and redemptive, right? So that's the main idea for for today. And so what we're really going to be talking about is how how do you pursue that? How do you have a relationship that's 
uh, loving and redemptive. And the model for how we are to do this is God himself. If we want to know how do we engage in a relationship that's loving and redemptive, uh, we can look at that one perfect relationship that is indeed loving and relationship uh, and redemptive. Excuse me. Uh, turn over to Romans uh, chapter five. I'm just going to look at three passages in Romans five that highlight for us uh, Romans five eight and twelve, but starting with chapter five that highlight for us how God engages with us in loving and redemptive relationship. In Romans chapter 5, we'll start in verse 6 here. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. All right, we'll stop there for now. What was the uh, dynamic between us and God when God initiated a relationship with us. What does Paul say here? We were enemies. We were enemies, right? We were enemies. So we were enemies of God. We were rebels. We were hostile. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 1, uh, we hated God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. I mean, you just pile on all of the terms that the Scripture describes of our unredeemed state. And there was, there was no hope. We were not pursuing God. We were not running after him saying, God, I want to have a relationship with you. <laughs> please, please, please. I want to be in the cool crowd. I want, to be part, I want to be part of your family, right? And there's none of that going on. But God in his love and his mercy, his compassion came to us in our sinful um, animosity and our hostility. And he redeemed us. And really what he did, uh, that the word there in verse Nine is he justified us. What does justification mean? Say that one more time. God has declared us legally not guilty of sin. Okay, he's declared us not legally guilty of sin. Another twist on that is he he has declared us righteous. We're we're standing before the judge of all the earth. We know we're guilty. We've committed all the crimes that. He knows we've committed, and yet he looks at us and he declares us not guilty or even better, righteous. Uh, How does he do that? He has credited our sin. He has taken it away from us and put it on Christ, who himself has uh, paid for that sin on the cross, and he has given us the righteousness of Christ. So we are wearing the righteous robes of Christ, says that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin He sees us primarily wearing the righteous robes of Christ. He's not fooled. He knows we're sinners. But but he treats us as if we had the righteousness of Christ. And he treated Christ as though Christ had uh, our sin, had lived our sinful life. So he 
He credits our sin to Christ, credits Christ's righteousness to us, and therefore declares us to be righteous. Now that, that kind of removes the hostility. Uh, in the language of Ephesians 2, he has torn down that wall that divided us and God, and really us and everyone else, especially Jew and Gentile. So there's this uh, restoration of relationship, there's this reconciliation between us and God that we are no longer hostile to Him. But then he goes one step further. Flip over to chapter 8. Verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. You could say sons and daughters of God. We're children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So God, in justifying us, doesn't simply take our sin away, uh, remove the wrath of God so that we are no longer uh, on the receiving end of His wrath, and then just kind of leave us alone. Okay, good. You're, you're good to go. Have a nice life. <laughs> no, He brings us into His family. He adopts us. He makes us His own. He establishes an everlasting uh, covenant of relationship with us such that not just do we get to call ourselves children of God, but we actually get all of the privileges and rights of being children of God. Right? That's what it says in verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So God reconciles us to himself, removes his wrath. He he establishes a a kind of relationship in the sense of we're no longer at war with one another. But then that relationship is defined by adoption, by being his children. And what does it mean to be a child? To be a child means that your parent uh, has the uh, purpose in life the purpose of parenting is to train, to teach, to nurture, to grow their children uh, according to you know, the right way. And so that's God's purpose for us. We learned that in Hebrews chapter 12, that uh, there, is, there is no child of God whom God does not discipline. Right? Any, any child of God who doesn't, whom God doesn't discipline is an illegitimate child because God disciplines those he, whom he loves. So what we're describing here is a model that God came to us when there was no pre-existing relationship except one that was defined by hostility. He removed that hostility, and then He brought us near to Himself, adopting us into His family for the purpose of redemption, for the purpose of bringing change into our lives. Another word you could use for that is for the purpose of sanctifying us. Right? He made us holy. That's the positional sanctification where He separated us from our sin unto Himself. And then that began the process of progressive sanctification where He is increasingly, uh, pr- uh, gradually becoming, uh, causing us to become more like Christ. To become more holy. 
that's our model, that, that God reconciles uh, sinners to Himself. He establishes a relationship, uh, a relationship that has its purpose changed. Now flip over one more time just to solidify this to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And from there on to the end of chapter uh, 16, he is talking about what does it look like for one who has been saved, redeemed, justified uh, by God, adopted into his family, what does it look like then to live the rest of your life? It's a life of transformation, a life of change. So this is what God does for us. He justifies us, he adopts us, and the purpose of that is to sanctify us, to make a people for himself. So, that's, that's our model. So our uh, model then tells us that our relationships with one another should be uh, serving the purpose of demonstrating that same kind of love, which is a love toward sinners, a love toward those who uh, we may not otherwise be naturally tend, uh, naturally um, attracted to in terms of you know commonalities or whatever uh, personality. Um, and we are to engage in relationship with one another for the purpose of, of growth and change. You know, so often, and just the natural way of things is we all gravitate toward different kinds of people. You, know, you come into a church for the first time and you're beginning to wonder, is this a group of people I can you know, spend years with on, on a regular basis? Well, you walk in, you, know, you don't know anybody, so you don't know yet. So then you start to mill around, whether that day or over the course of weeks, and start to meet people, and you start to find out, okay, who has the same interests that I do? You know, who likes uh, to go shooting? Who likes to do crocheting? Who likes to, you know, whatever? <laughs> Who's the, who are the techie people? Who are, you know, who are the history buffs? And you find, you find that group that, that uh, fits with your particular interests. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but... Uh, one of the things that that does is it keeps us in uh, circles that we're comfortable with and it establishes relationships on the basis of commonalities. Again, that's not necessarily a problem. That's, that's not a sinful re- uh, dynamic. But God wants so much more for us. When He places us into the body of Christ, He places us into a people that we would normally never interact with. I mean, just think about all the people you know here at Hope Bible Church. If you weren't part of Hope Bible Church, how many of these people uh, would you have a relationship with? Would you encounter just in the course of your life? Very few, if any, right? I mean, frankly, we wouldn't even be here because we'd be on the West Coast (laughs) if it weren't for Hope Bible Church. Um, And so uh, God places us into a local church in relationship with all kinds of people, with all kinds of interests, all kinds of backgrounds, different ages and stages of life and family dynamics and life dynamics, just all, all sorts of things. And rather than um, filtering ourselves into special interest groups, if you will, God designs us to live in relationship with one another so that we can 
grow together and have redemptive growth-oriented relationships. Yeah, Josh. One thing to echo what you're saying that's standing out to me is that, you know, this sanctifying love is offered to us without condition. Mm. And going back to your earlier question of why was it not good for man to be alone, I mean, the accountability and selfishness, those are good answers for the fallen man. But when at the time, you know, man was still in the state of grace. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that without that context of wife and, and family, it would be hard to truly understand experience the unconditional love that the Father has for us. Mm. And so it's like that aspect of that unconditional love with, or understanding it, practicing it was kind of missing from that equation. And and I think that is the, the crux of the model to me is that, mm -hmm. you know, we, we shouldn't have these you know, special, special interest groups of love, but unconditional towards everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's helpful. So again, it's, I'm, I'm not saying it's bad to have special interest groups uh, for like the homeschooling families to get together and do things together for, I mean, I, at our previous church, uh, we had a men's Bible study at the gun club. And, and so whoever wanted to stay afterward and go shooting, you know, we would do that. So only certain men showed up to that, right? <laughs> Those who wanted to do that. Uh, none of that is wrong, but what would be wrong would be to say, this is the only group that I'm going to have any relationship with. When you join a small group Bible study, a home Bible study, uh, those tend to not be special interest groups. Those just tend to be somewhat geographically oriented people who generally live in the same area. Uh, maybe in some cases, similar stages of life, but still a lot of differences among us. Uh, those are great opportunities to get to know others who are just different than you, who you otherwise wouldn't choose to spend time with, or I should say, who you wouldn't be uh, have the opportunity to, to get to know. Uh, same thing with classes like this, where you can get to know each other before and after, where you can hear each other interact uh, during the class. Uh, same thing before and after the service with the people who sit around you. Uh, there's, an always, there's always opportunities in the context of the local church to get to know people who you, you otherwise have no common interests with, or you're just in a different stage of life, or just the dynamics of life would otherwise keep you apart. And I would just encourage you to take advantage of that, to, to not think to yourself, well, uh, that's, that's an older couple, you know, we have young kids, so we're, we're probably not going to become best friends. It's not about becoming best friends. <laughs> It's about how can we love one another and grow in Christ together. Uh, because we don't know how much our differences the Lord can use to bring mutual blessing and, and help in, in our lives. You, so, yes? Can I just encourage to, the Lord can bring in those uncomfortable contexts, the Lord can bring people into your life that do end up being best friends. And you just look at your relationship and you go, how did this even happen? And it's because of the Lord. And it's, I have two very close relationships with women that I would, we would never be friends outside mm -hmm. of Christ. But it's, it's a, it's a relationship where we are best friends, but we also speak the truth in love. Mm -hmm. We say the hard things. Mm -hmm. We, we do mm -hmm. this. Yeah. yeah. So don't, don't be afraid of people who are different from you. That's yeah. My yeah. Very good. Thank you. And let me add another layer to that. 
it's not only it's not yeah only about people who are different. Another layer of that would be people that we would perceive to be needy. Uh, and we're like, I don't have room for that in my life, so I don't want to get started with that relationship. Um, you know, you think about the church as a hospital. You know, we, we understand that analogy. We've heard it many times that the church is a place where uh, Christ came to save the sick, not the righteous. So we're here because we're acknowledging the fact that we're all sinners in need of grace, not only saving grace, but sanctifying grace. Uh, and yet there's something in us, it's, it's our sinful nature, that uh, really wants our relationships to be with other people who are healthy. Uh, we, we really avoid, often, I'm making a very broad brush statement here, but we tend to avoid relationships with people who are really sick. And I'm not thinking uh, physically sick, though that could yeah. be true. But we, we're like, uh, that, there's something going on with that person <laughs> There's a whole lot of mess there. Uh, they're really needy. Maybe it's physical needs that they have. Maybe it's you know brokenness. Maybe their personality is different than what you'd prefer. You know whatever it is that we're like that's that person needs a lot of grace from Christ, and uh, I'm just gonna let someone else show that grace. <laughs> you know I want to I prefer to to get to know and have relationships with people who are relatively healthy. You know that that's a uh, self-oriented way of thinking that would say, I want relationships that make me happier, that build me up, that are easy, that are comfortable, and we, we often avoid those that are difficult for various reasons. And so we have an opportunity, again, as the body of Christ, to say, you know what, I'm just as sick as everybody else. <laughs> I have all my own issues, my own sins, struggles, sufferings, and so I have uh, the privilege of coming alongside another person with their own challenges, very different than mine, uh, to show the love of Christ to them. All right. Um, what does it look like to have a loving uh, relationship? Let me give you four, again, this all comes from Paul Tripp's material here, but four characteristics of a loving relationship. There's a whole lot more you could add to these things, but when, but when you're specifically thinking about how do you help people change, there's four things that are essential in a loving relationship. We'll work through the first two today and the next two next week. But the first one that we'll talk about is enter the person's world. If you want to have a loving relationship with someone, that's a, a redemptive relationship, one of the ways you demonstrate love is by entering into another person's world. Uh, the second one, I'll just give you all four of them real quick and then we'll come back. The second one is incarnate the love of, love of Christ, uh, which essentially is uh, to exhibit the character of Christ. Uh, put on display what Christ is like to that person. Incarnate the love of Christ. The third that we'll talk about next week is identi identify with suffering. Uh, learn to identify with suffering, to recognize uh, and affirm that we're all sinners in a sin-cursed world. Uh, and then number four, accept uh, with agenda. Accept the person, welcome them into your life, but with an agenda for growth and change. So we don't, uh, we don't leave each other the way we, we are. We, we pursue growth and change in each other's lives. So enter the person's world, incarnate the love of Christ, identify with suffering, and accept 
with agenda. All right, so first of all, enter the person's world. What does it look like if we're having a loving and redemptive relationship? What does it look like to enter another person's world? Well, Proverbs 18.13, some of you know it, says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. And intuitively, we hear that and we know exactly what that means. That means you need to get information before you can give counsel. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've quoted that verse uh, just at the start of a counseling session because I want the person I'm meeting with to know that I I need to spend a lot of time uh, hearing your story, getting to know you before I can know how I can help you. But we often hear that passage and we think in terms of facts. I need to get the facts. I need to get information uh, so that I can know how to respond to that information. And, and what I want to encourage us to consider in this, under this heading of entering another person's world is it's not just about the facts. Yes, facts are essential, obviously. But we want to understand the person. We want to understand the person. Um, we want to be person-oriented in our ministry, not problem-oriented. If you only focus on the facts, what happened, what was said, what was done, what was the response, you're focusing on the, the contained problem, you know, however big or small it is. But if you're focusing on the person, you're, you're focusing on uh, the, the heart uh, that is um, walking through that particular trial. So that, that's what we want to get at here. When we are in a relationship with someone and we want to be an agent of change by the grace of God, uh, there are various entry gates into someone's life. Uh, Maybe uh, there's a problem that's going on in their life that we think, oh, there's an opportunity here to engage at the level of a problem that someone's uh, going through. Uh, Maybe there's a circumstance in their life, you know, similar to a problem, but there's something going on that I have an opportunity to engage uh, with this person. Or maybe there's uh, other people around this person, there's broken relationships or a broken relationship that, that I can come alongside this person and minister to them. Uh, the issue, though, is not what is the problem, what is the circumstance, or wh- who are the people that, or the individual that this person is in a broken relationship with. The issue that we really have the opportunity to get into someone else's world is their own experience of their circumstances, or you could say their interpretation of their situation. So for example, um, if you have, if you're talking to someone who is a, a frustrated parent, they're frustrated because their child is rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted, won't listen, doesn't matter how many times they you know, do all the steps of biblical discipline, doesn't matter how much they teach and try and do family devotions, it doesn't matter how much they try and build into this child's life biblical truth and discipline and, and you know, consequences, just trying to help this child listen, submit, obey, you know, do what, what they're responsible to do. That child is just hard-hearted, rebellious, just doesn't listen to anything. So now you have a frustrated parent who's exasperated over their child. What 
as you think about this, maybe you're, you're a parent or you can imagine uh, what, what it might be. What would be difficult about that situation? Why would having a rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted child be difficult? And I'm talking at the level of a person's experience. Maybe you've been in that situation. What is it about having a child that doesn't listen? You have a loss of expectation. Okay. You, and this was something that I dealt with. I, I felt like I did all the right things, mm-hmm. and then I had this rebellious child. Mm. And what about the promises of God? Who, you know, everybody quotes... Um, Oh, Train up a child, yeah, Can you tease that out just a little bit more? Why is it heartbreaking? What, what comes to your mind as to what makes it heartbreaking? Because it's their child. You know, it's, they had different hopes and dreams for them. Hmm. And it's very heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, like if you could take an x-ray of yeah. a parent's heart, you yeah. know, you'd see how many times yeah. it's been broken. Yeah. And it's just, you know, instead of focusing on what the child's doing and you know the parent will think they did wrong mm-hmm. you know and but the parent is so heartbroken yeah. and nobody will take the time with them to talk about that mm-hmm. because it's much easier for the parent to not deal with themselves and the pain that's on the inside of mm-hmm. how disappointed mm-hmm. heartbroken they yeah. really are yeah that yeah yeah no that's good i mean there's a lot of different things there that you mentioned which are all all helpful uh, I'll just highlight what, what I what, uh, uh, heard uh, particularly is the love that they have for their child. Mm-hmm. Um, and love meaning I want the best for my child, not, uh, not necessarily the best things of life, but I, I want my child to you know, be as successful in, in, in the best of senses. Um, and that's not happening, and so my heart's broken. There's sorrow, there's mm-hmm. there's grief, there's loss. Don, all right. I think especially mixed with that, like you love them and you want them to have a life of ease and success and comfort and great relationship with the Lord and with others. And because you're older, you know a good path to get there. 
but you can't control them. Mm-hmm. And that, I think for me, that's what's most frustrating is like you have the answer. And yeah. Like, you're stupid. Just listen to me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That frustration of I, I know the, the path, but you're not you're not listening. Okay. Well, maybe one more, Josh. I was going to say I also think that control gets uh, frustrated too with responsibility, where you know God has entrusted me to be the parent, to be the shepherd of this child, and my sheep keeps jumping off the cliff. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stop there. Just these are examples, but I hope you've heard how different all of these things are. And I would submit to you that while a lot of these might be at work in one parent's heart, what's probably true is there's one or two things of what's said, or maybe other things that are rise that are really a particular emphasis in their heart. Yes, they'll be heartbroken. They'll be frustrated. They'll lost expectations. There might be a variety of things, but there's probably one or two things that are the real issues that are a a point of struggle for them. And so while we might come into a situation like that and say, well, have you tried this parenting technique? (laughs) Have you tried this or have you read this parenting book? You know, we want to come with a solution to their problem that they have this rebellious child. But first, before we offer any help, we have to listen, what is this parent particularly struggling with? Right? Uh, I've mentioned this story before. This is along the lines of what Josh just said. But uh, talking to a, a mother many years ago whose daughter was rebellious and came to find out that her particular struggle was how her daughter's behavior reflected on her as a parent. If I'm not... If I don't have an obedient child, what does that say for me as a mother? And so for her, that was number one. For others, it might be other other issues. And so we have to know what what is it about this experience, this situation that this person is struggling with the most? Because that's going to be the most pressing issue. There might be yeah, again, other, other issues that can be talked about, but the most significant issue is where we really have the opportunity to listen to what is going on in the heart of this person. All right, let's, let's change the situation. Um, I have several examples. Uh, for the sake of time, let me pick um, cancer diagnosis. What, what are some... Uh, things that would be particularly difficult for someone uh, with a cancer diagnosis. You know, they hear the news, they're struggling with that. Why might someone struggle with that diagnosis? Clintus. So it goes back to what somebody said earlier. So you live your life with the check off the box list. I go to the gym. I'm eating the quote-unquote perfect diet. I get regular checkups. I do all the mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to, I guess, keep you healthy, mm-hmm. and you still get this diagnosis, and you're like, yeah, yeah, what's going on? Yeah, so loss of expectation, maybe yeah. uh, questioning God's goodness. I've, I follow all the rules. All right, what else, Josh? My mind goes to the, the Job scenario of like, why would God let this happen to me? Mm. Is it something I did? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, or just, why would He allow bad things? I sometimes can get caught up in, well, I, I deserve to now I've had these kids, 
I deserve to have this time with them. I should see them get married. I should see them do these things. Even though that's not that's not promised to us. So it's a shifting of that. Why am I here? I wasn't promised to get to see that out. Yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. What else? One or two more. Yeah. All right. I think my trouble would be not being able to do the tasks that I would feel are my responsibility. Okay. I've never had cancer, but it, it seems like it really hinders your ability to function. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a huge trouble for me, not being able to the complete tasks. Okay. Yeah. All right. Maybe one more. Yeah. Minchie. Well, for me, I would be worried about my family. Who's going to take care of my family? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so again, you hear all these different reasons. Uh, and so if you're having an opportunity to minister to someone who's struggling with their diagnosis, it's not just about, hey, trust God. He works all everything for good. I mean, those are true things. But you have to first understand what is, what is, it, what is it about this that makes it a particular struggle for this individual in this moment. And it may change over time. You know, maybe you learn that, just to go with the last one, that they're really struggling with who's going to take care of my family. Uh, and, you know, for a mother, it might be, you know, they're raising other kids uh, that, that uh, you know, who's going to raise my kids. For a father, it might be who's going to provide financially for my family. Uh, different, different ways that can manifest itself. So, Maybe you have an opportunity to work through that. They come, become settled. Okay, I'm going to trust the Lord and he's going to take care of them. But then another uh, issue rises to the surface that makes it particularly difficult. Uh, why is God doing this? Is he punishing me? You know, whatever it might be. So we have to understand. We have to get into their world to understand what is it about this situation that is particularly difficult for them. Uh, so... Um, so that's critical to, to understand what is their particular experience. So we can ask ourselves, uh, what is this person struggling with in the midst of this situation? What, what has this person in its grip uh, in, in this situation? Now, if, if you pursue this approach and you're trying to understand what is it about this that's partic- particularly difficult for this person, the benefit of that is... Uh, in the process of that, the person you're ministering to, they will see very clearly that you're seeking to understand them. That you're not just throwing, you know, uh, platitudes and verses and whatnot their direction that you know they probably already know. But they're like, wow, this person really wants to understand. They and they actually do understand um, what, what's going on. And then also. If, if you're really understanding what they're struggling with, then you're going to be prevented from giving unhelpful counsel, right? From saying things that don't apply to them. Like, yeah, 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 but that's not what I'm struggling with. That's not the issue here. So how, how do you go about getting into someone's world? Well, here are some things that you can be listening for as you have conversation with someone. You can listen for emotive words. Uh, words like, you know, I'm so scared, uh, I feel so angry, or I'm frustrated by, you know, just words that express emotion. And emotions are the, the visceral reaction that occurs inside of us when we interpret uh, the situ- situations of life through our heart, through our desires, our thoughts, our beliefs, our, our um, values, priorities, uh, our will. And so when we express emotion, we're revealing what's going on in our heart. 
Uh, you can listen for interpretive words uh, where they are interpreting their situation. Like, I guess I deserve this. Um, I, I guess that this is what's best, you know, for, for me. Um, or listen for self-talk where they're reflecting on themselves. I am such a failure. Uh, I have not lived up to, you know, what, what God asked for me or whatever it is that, that they're expressing about themselves. And then also listen for God talk. You know, God is punishing me or, you know, I thought I did everything right. Why is God not blessing me? Listening for those kinds of things for emotive uh, words, for interpretive words, for self-talk, for God talk. Those are windows into the heart of another person that help us understand what's really going on at, at the heart level. And then we, ha- we just have to ask questions, heart level questions. Remember the heart is made up of those three basic chambers of the, the cognitive, the thoughts and beliefs, the affective, the uh, values, priorities, uh, desires, and then the volitional, the will, and commitments. So we can ask questions. Uh, what are you believing to be true about God in this situation? What, what do you believe to be true uh, about yourself? What are your desires uh, in this situation? What, are, what do you desire as the outcome that would be best? Uh, what's important to you in this moment? Um, what are you really committed to uh, in this situation? What's going to determine how you move forward? Those kinds of questions, I mean, there's an innumerable number of questions that you, know, you can ask depending on the situation uh, to get at the heart of their thoughts, beliefs, desires, priorities, values, their will and commitment. You can ask questions about their view of, their, of God, their view of themselves, their view of others their view of the world itself, just to draw out from them uh, what's, what's in their heart. And all of that is just aimed at getting into their world. It's not about, let me get something so I can you know, come back at them with a, a sledgehammer of the word, but it's just seeking to understand what is going on in this person's heart. What are they struggling with? How can I, how can I know them in order to minister to them effectively. All right, uh, time is running low. Incarnating the love of Christ is the second dynamic of a loving, redemptive relationship. Turn over to uh, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. This is, uh, I think, a point that we can make fairly quickly. Colossians chapter 3. Again, incarnating the love of Christ means simply to display Christ-like character uh, to them. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. <coughs> And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want you to notice, just look at the text. I want you to notice how he starts by emphasizing our identity. He says that we are God's chosen ones, that we are holy, and that we are beloved. Which is to say we are loved by God. It is out of those aspects of our identity, that's who we are, that then we exhibit Christ-like character. Put on compassion, compassionate hearts, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, uh, tolerance, um, forgiveness, uh, love. All of these things are uh, attributes of character that Christ had, right? Which then we are then to exhibit to others. And notice that our identity, which leads to our character, that then leads to our words. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you recently, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I don't know if Paul or the Holy Spirit necessarily had a step-by-step chronological process in mind, but uh, he clearly put these in a particular order that I think is helpful to us. Because if we speak words without Christ-like character, uh, we can do damage. We can harm someone by speaking the truth without love. (laughs) Right? Uh, If we lack compassion, if we lack patience, if we lack kindness, but we're just throwing truth out, man, you can really harm someone uh, by either not saying what they need in the moment or by saying it in a way that's destructive and tearing them down, uh, or by uh, just your your own uh, demeanor uh, conveying a lack of, of concern and care for them as a person that shows uh, even disdain uh, to some to some degree. You know where they don't feel like you're seeking to help them, you're but rather you're seeking to uh, to control and dominate them. So. Lacking character, the truth, can be harmful. But with godly, Christ-like character, the truth can um, just move into their soul, obviously by the Spirit uh, working, but the, 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 the truth can slide down their throat. As they say, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. I don't know if anybody says that other than Mary Poppins, but there you have it. Um, Proverbs says, you know, uh, wisdom is like apples of gold and settings of silver. You know, there's, there's uh, an appropriate way to convey truth. And that appropriate way is exhibiting Christ-like character. Compassion, meekness, kindness, love, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, all of those things. And this is so essential because if someone is struggling uh, and... You know, maybe anger is part of their struggle. It's probably true that their own battle with sin is going to come out toward you. That if they're frustrated with someone and you're trying to help them, you know, pursue a restored relationship, that at some point they're going to get frustrated with you and their sin is going to get splashed up on you. And so that's going to be an opportunity then to exhibit Christ-like character. Uh, to, To show the love of Christ that there's true concern there and and, and true love. 
Uh, I remember a number of years ago, um, when I was pastor in Washington, I was counseling this uh, teenage young man whose uh, grandma would bring him to, to counseling, and he had a lot of different challenges, uh, broken family, and just all kinds of issues that, that led to suffering, but then he was also a teenager, right? <laughs> so he, was, he responded to his suffering with a lot of sin. And in my immaturity, I, I thought, you know what this kid needs? Is he needs some hard truth. He just needs someone to slap him upside the face, you know, and, and convey some truth to him. To speak frankly and directly and not, not beat around the bush. So I don't remember all of what I said, but there was this one moment where I just said something along the lines of, uh, you know, I, I just perceive you to be a punk kid and blah, blah, blah. I, I, that's all I remember, just punk kid. And you know what? That's all he remembered too. Uh, he came back several weeks later, and he told me, he's like, you know, I was really offended last time that, that you called me a punk kid. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, because you are. <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. And uh, he, he told me how he left that counseling session, the, the previous one, you know, upset, offended, and that he told his grandma that I had said that. And that his grandma was like, well, I don't think Pastor Gabe probably would have said that. <laughs> well, she was wrong. <laughs> but that, that was such a, a helpful lesson in, I thought he just needed to hear some direct truth. right? But I didn't exhibit any compassion, care, uh, love. Uh, and you know, whatever truth there was in anything else that I said, he didn't hear it because he was offended by the one thing I said that was unloving. And so it's so vital for us that we exhibit Christ-like character. Uh, exhibiting Christ-like character, uh, what, the benefits of that, um, I mean, all of this together, if, if, if we bundle in the getting into someone else's world and incarnating the love of Christ, uh, what that does is it builds trust in that relationship. Because they know that we're actually interested in who they are as a person. Uh, that they're not a project to us. They're not a problem for us to solve. They are a person for us to know and love and care for. Uh, and then we're exhibiting Christ-like love and compassion and uh, mercy and kindness and all of those things. Uh, that, that builds trust where they, they see us as someone that they can listen to. Someone who has their best interest in mind. Someone who wants to hear and not just talk. That also can strengthen vertical hope in terms of as we then do speak and we give hope and encouragement with Christ. They're like, well, because I now trust this person, I, I have hope in what they're saying is true. That, that God really is for me and not against me. And whatever other aspects of hope uh, is, is conveyed. And it also uh, helps them to be more committed to that relationship for growth and change. That they want now to engage with you because they have received that mercy, that love, and compassion. Uh, and so they, they want to engage in that. It's, a, it's attractive to them. And then exhibiting Christ-like character also reveals to them, if, if that's an issue they're struggling with, that change is possible. That if you can walk like Christ, that they can then also grow and walk like Christ. So it, it engenders uh, hope in in the possibility of change. All right, well, there's there's a lot more we could say about those things, which is what all teachers and preachers say when they run out of notes. But, um, 
No, really, I, I am at the end of my notes. <laughs> no, there, there's a lot more in the books, uh, but we're out of time, so. Uh, I hope this is helpful. This is the kind of thing where, um, you know, it's hard to remember in the moment you know, when, oh, there's a conversation, what was, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> Uh, you know, if there's any just one thing that you remember, it's just how can I show the love of Christ? How can I uh, exhibit the character of Christ? Uh, how can I love this person well? Amy. <laughs> yeah um, well you know one possible response could be along the lines of you know thank you for caring enough to share that with me um, I, I will you know consider that and pray about that um, yeah just you know, thank them because even when someone is giving bad counsel uh, it's you know, whatever their motives are, which you know, often are good, sometimes could not be as as righteous. There's still uh, an intentional desire, like I want to be helpful to you. You know, it might be prideful, <laughs> like I know I can help you if you just do what I say. But there's still there's still something there of I, I want to be helpful to you, and so we can at least acknowledge that. You know, thank you for speaking up and sharing that with me. And. You know, I'll, I'll consider that. That really gives me something to think about. Something like that. Don? Do you think it's ever appropriate in that instance to tell them how, um, for example, like just tell them, like, I just needed someone to feel with me, not fix me? Because sometimes you need to yeah. just, yeah. you need that connection, but you're, like, maybe it's grief that you need yeah. to sit through. Yeah. You don't want somebody to just shove. Yeah. You just need someone. So is it okay to let them know that, or should you just walk away? Um, I'm not going to say it's not okay to say that. What I'm thinking through is how to communicate that well. Um, they, they may not. They may want to sit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I can say. Uh, I've heard that kind of thing from my wife many times, <laughs> uh, where I just I, let me solve the problem for you, um, and um, yeah, it, maybe um, one way to convey that is is to say something like, you know, "I appreciate you know your your words of encouragement. Uh, could we just take a moment to pray? And could you just pray for me?" Right, right now, um, or you know, when you have, an, you know, depending on what the context of the situation is, hey, when you have some time, I, I'd love to just sit and share with you, you know, what what I'm struggling with. But you also there, there's wisdom to consider, you know, if you engage further, are they just going to continue to respond that way? So, um, I, I think you probably just need to discern: is this someone who, oh, they just oops in the moment? And, and they're able to sit with me in my suffering, and they just kind of need a, a hint to do that, or or are they not able to do that? And so maybe it's just not helpful to convey that. Um, 
I would suspect that usually it's more helpful to convey something like that sometime later um, where there it might be received better um, so. and by the way what I often say to people who share something very difficult is uh, I'll say something like that sounds so hard and I can imagine why that would be hard but would you mind sharing with me what makes it particularly hard for you um, you know, as opposed to sounding like, well, what's hard about that? <laughs> Probably not the best way to say it, right? <laughs> so there's an identifying, yes, this is hard. and I, I can understand how, why that would be hard if that happened to me, but why is it hard? What is it that makes it hard for you? Anyway, all right, let me pray.